I'm Andrew. I'm uh, one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, if you're new here, that is a beautiful picture of what we're trying to do as a church here uh, and what Christ has been working in through our community over the last couple of years. Uh, Just seeing uh, two people of different generations standing side by side, leading a multi-generational church together, singing a worship song to Jesus is nothing short of phenomenal, if you ask me. So I'm, I'm really blessed by that. Just sitting here being a part of it was really encouraging. Uh, another thing that I want to encourage you all with is Oshawa was praying as he was talking about um, loving our leaders. I just want you to know, since I've been here, I have felt overwhelmingly loved. I mean, unbelievable from encouraging notes, uh, to physical provision, uh, to just getting a hug, to being a part of this community. Um, I just want to commend all of you for just doing a great job to building a loving community. So thank you for that. Yesterday we had a work party, and as I looked at the forecast, I was a little unnerved because it called for thunderstorms. Uh, But the Lord was also gracious in that, and that it, it didn't, it didn't, it rained a little, but not a ton. And so uh, there were about 20, 25 people who showed up, and it was a, a special time. It was a really good time. If you've never been to one of our work parties, you should come. Um, I think for a while, uh, I made the mistake of saying, hey, come, you know, we have some easy work that needs to be done. And I realized that telling people that there's easy work isn't really compelling. And so when you encourage people and say, we're working Uh, so that Christ can be made known in our community, and that by beautifying our building, we're not just making us look good or doing easy work for work's sake. We're actually doing it because we love love Jesus Christ and want to see him proclaimed. And so if you haven't been a part of that, please come be a part of it, because relationship, it's not just about the work. It's about the relationships. And we had carpets cleaned. We had trees chopped back. We had about eight, uh, eight yards of cedar chips dumped on the playground, three yards of pea gravel, weed whacking, window washing, weeds being pulled. I had a group, this is silly, I had a group count all the chairs and pews and tables in the entire building and tell me how many we had and if we needed to throw some away. Sounds like a silly job. But when you can go and sit down on a chair that breaks, you're going to wish it would have been done, right? (laughs) So there was a lot of really important jobs. And so I'm going to try to do those um, more often. And I would just really encourage you, bring your family. If you can only come for an hour, that's fine. If you can come for the whole time, that's great. And uh, if you have kids, bring them as well. There were three families there yesterday working, including one mom who literally had her kids strapped to her back as she was washing windows. So it was a good time. Let's pray, and then let's jump into our passage this morning. We're going to be in Mark 9, uh, but I just want to pray and, and just invite the Lord to be part of this as we get going here. Lord, I thank you for this community. I thank you for the opportunity um, that we get to open up your word together and we get to see what it says. I thank you that you've given it to us, that you've given us your holy scriptures in order that we um, can follow you and, and, and know um, what you would have for us in our lives. I pray for clarity and wisdom for me, that you would help me as the things that I've studied and I've prayed and meditated about, that those would come out clearly for all these brothers and sisters. And that the ways that you have encouraged my soul and refined my spirit, that you would do the same thing 
today in the hearts and the minds of everybody here. Lord, we love you. We trust you. Uh, and we are super thankful that we get to be part of this church. In your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so Christian growth is a remarkable and delicate process that doesn't happen on accident. I think many of you who have been Christians a long time would know that. And at the heart of Christian living is a vulnerability and grace that can only thrive uh, in the most nurtured and peaceful environments. Communities, uh, communities of believers, including here at Central Bible Church, we have the opportunity to foster that type of environment an environment where both brand new believers and seasoned saints um, can be honest with their own struggles, knowing that others will be uh, not divisive and not judgmental, quick to radically forgive, generous beyond measure, hospitable in all situations, and patient in the process of Christian growth. Can you imagine if we had a community like that? Man, being a Christian would be it would be an exciting process. So those are radical ideas given the culture that we live in. And, uh, it's, but for, for God, it's just another day in the kingdom. And so my main question for you today is this. Are you convinced of the radical life the gospel calls us to? Or have you allowed culture to rock you to sleep with... Um, with moral ambiguity and political correctness. Let me say that again because I stumbled. Are you convinced of the, the, the radical life that the gospel calls us to? Or have you allowed culture to rock you to sleep with moral ambiguity and political correctness? And I think if I'm honest with myself and with all of you, I'm going to answer yes to both of those statements. I'm totally convinced of the gospel of Christ. But often, it's really easy to just give in to what the world around us says is normal, right, and acceptable. And our society today, um, the kingdom that we've been looking through as we study Mark, says anything but that. And so if you have your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be going through Mark 9, 38 through 50. It's a continuation of last week where Daniel preached. It says, John said to him, John's one of his disciples, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut that off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where there are where their worms does not die and the fire is not quenched. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All right, is anybody else a little confused with this passage? Because 
I am. When I first read it, it, it kind of jumps all over the place. It almost seems like Jesus is tired of teaching to his disciples and has just resorted to you know, fortune cookie sayings and just kind of rambling them off. And so let me do a quick recap before I get into this. First, if you run into somebody casting out demons in Jesus' name, just let them do their thing, okay? Just let it go. Also, if, uh, if somebody gives you a cup of cold water, gladly receive it. You're helping them get rich in heaven. That's pretty cool. If, you help somebody, if somebody sins because of you or you cause somebody to sin, quickly grab a big rock, tie it around your neck, and jump in the ocean. That's going to be better for you. Next, if you are sinning, start chopping off body parts until that sin stops or you have no more limbs. Okay? Next, uh, there's going to be crazy mutant worms in hell. We'll get back to those. And also, salt is really awesome. So be like salt, okay? P.S., be at peace with one another. That's kind of how it reads, right? Like, it's just like, whoa, what? Where is Jesus going? So let's get into this. Because uh, I, think, I think Christ is doing something here, obviously. And, and, and when I first looked at this, um, I was a little bit confused. So first, if you have your bulletin, open up to the title. Cross that title off and throw it away. Um, Friday morning, I was talking with my father-in-law and just kind of going through the passage, and I realized that my title was stupid, and I, the bulletin had already been printed, so we're going to go with this. If you want to cross it off, you, you can do that and write A Radical Kingdom. That's my new title. That's what we're going to go through. A Radical Kingdom. And I'm just going to embrace the fact that this passage is choppy. All right? I could try to come up with one theme for you that hopefully you would all leave with saying, yeah, that was awesome. I'm really glad that that one theme was really helpful. But I think you would have all just left confused. And so I'm just going to embrace it for what it is. It's four choppy sayings that God is talking about that all reflect to the kingdom of God. And then after I go through all four of those sayings, one, one at a time, I'm going to circle all around I'm going to talk about the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then we're going to be done. Sound good? That's, that's the roadmap. So first thing, our first point today is that competition is for wimps, okay? Competition is for wimps, and we see that in, chapter, in verse 38. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Go us because he was not following us. And so we know that from the context that right before this, Jesus, uh, or the disciples had attempted to cast out a demon, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it because they didn't pray. We talked, I think we talked about that last week. And so they, uh, they're obviously mad. They weren't able to do something. Somebody else was able to do that same thing they couldn't do, and that disturbed them, Right? And so what we have on one hand, we have an uncertified, unsanctioned, uh, successful disciple. And then on the other side, we have a certified, sanctioned, yet unsuccessful disciple. And so you can see the tension here, right? So the disciples, they're, they're naturally angry and frustrated. And you can almost ma- imagine them thinking like, What gives? Like, this guy did not go to the Jesus Christ school of casting out demons and other miraculous things, right? This is just some guy. I think he was a disciple following Jesus. 
but he wasn't kind of the inner close group that John is referring to here. So there's a pride that exists, and it's a pride that leads to competition. It's an us versus them mentality. We are the winners because we have Jesus Christ. We have the winners because, or we're the winners because we follow the Bible. And that person or that ministry doesn't. But Jesus takes on a different tone here, like he often does. And I can imagine Jesus kind of saying, really? Really? Have I taught you, have I taught you nothing? Seriously. And so he says to them, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able to afterward speak evil of me. For those, for the one who is not against us is for us. And so Jesus is speaking directly into competition. The disciples have this idea because that they, because they have this idea that because they are with Jesus, uh, they were the ones that know everything or knew everything and did things the right way. They had Jesus with them. And that was that inner pride. And Jesus is changing that paradigm. And he's saying, it's not about you. It's, it's about me as Jesus Christ. And it's not about what you're doing. It's who you're doing it for. Again, me, Jesus Christ. He's trying to bring them back to that. And not only that, he, he takes this radical idea and takes it one step further. Not are we to not compete with other Christian brothers, we're actually supposed to bless them in what they're doing. And that's where the cup of cold water comes in. It says, For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So not only are we not to compete with one another, we are supposed to actively encourage other people and other ministries who are doing Christ's work, blessing them like they are Christ themselves. That's pretty cool, right? Not only are we not to compete with them, we're to bless them. Like, that just goes so, it's so anti-cultural society, you know, we don't, we're supposed to compete. And so as a church, we must seek to live this type of life together. I know often I'm guilty of this, and just to kind of open up to you, it's easy for me to think um, I'm the one who went to Bible school, and I'm the one that goes to seminary, and uh, I do this every day, and so I, I know more. You know, I think anybody, whatever field you're in, you kind of, it's really easy to get into that. And so I can do that. And what I've realized over the last number of years is not only is that sinful, it's just stupid, right? It's just foolish. You know, it's saying, I know more, and I'm going to disregard everybody who is older, wiser, and also loves Jesus. You can kind of see that's that competition that kind of comes in the us versus them mentality. And so that, that takes away from the type of community that, we, um, that we're trying to have here as a, as a church. It replaces Jesus Christ from the center, and it puts Andrew Pratt at the center right? That Andrew Pratt guy, pretty good guy. Or it takes what we're doing and it says, okay, it's not about Jesus Christ, actually. It's about Andrew Pratt. And so that's, it's really easy for us as Christians, for me as a Christian, to do that. It's really easy to put me at the center. And the second way competition can exist, and, uh, and we can compete with churches or ministries, is we can, we can compete with other people, right? We can compete with other churches, and sometimes we don't really think of that, but it's kind of subtle. And I'm guilty of this one as well. 
It's easy for me to go down the path of thinking, man, I need to prove myself to my friends at other churches. I need to prove myself to whether it be other youth pastors or other pastors or other ministry leaders or this parachurch organization. We're, we do so much, you know, our things are so much better than that parachurch organization. But it just kind of leads to that slow death spiral where we replace Jesus Christ at the center with us. And it becomes less about, you know, what is Jesus Christ and his gospel doing in our community of Portland? And it's more of, you know, what are individuals or a collection of individuals doing instead? That's just, that just leads to the mentality of death. And so as a church, we are, Christ calls us to this radical way of living. And this radical way of living says, if other churches keep Jesus Christ at the center and are preaching the gospel, we succeed when they succeed. So we may be not growing, maybe we're struggling, but if we can support other churches or they can support us, if we have that kingdom mentality where when they succeed, we succeed, so we're as a church, I mean, that's the type of community that we want to form. And so Christ owns in on the competition in his first statement. So in his next statement, we're going to see this. Oh, no, you didn't. That's how I titled this one. Oh, no, you didn't. Mark 9, 42. He says, for whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's just a weird statement. I'm just going to say that right there. It's a radical statement. And so here, children, Christ still has that child on his lap, most likely. He's sitting there. He's talking about that last week, Daniel. So he's definitely referring to that child on his lap. But he's also referring to Christians in general, all Christians who he would call his sons and daughters. And more specifically, to young Christians, those who are new in their faith. So it could be a, a young, young Christian, like a four-year-old, or it could be an old, young Christian, maybe somebody a little older. So he's referring to that. And he's saying by causing any Christian, both young and old alike, to sin is worse than being tied to a millstone and thrown into the sea or thrown into the water. Wow, bold statement. So this millstone is not like one of those herbal remedy little things that you squish your pill so that you don't have to swallow that massive pill and you can just put it in your water. This would have been a massive, massive rock. And so that's how they ground their grain, right? They tied it to a big donkey or an ox, and it just slowly went around and around, that big millstone. And that millstone, if you can imagine, if that was tied to you, you would have literally zero chance of, of surviving. The strongest swimmer in the world would do nothing compared to a multi-thousand-pound rock dragging you to the bottom of the ocean. And so basically, it's this mentality of, you would have had no hope. It would be better if you didn't even exist. And so that attitude, um, that's the attitude that Christ takes when talking about causing others to sin. It's a serious matter. It's a very serious matter. Because you're not just dealing with somebody's earthly life. You're dealing with their, their heavenly life, their, their eternal life, their soul. And as a church, we have to ask the question, how are we causing others to sin? I think the vast majority of ways we cause others to sin are not the obvious in-your-face sins. Those do happen, but I think they're rare. And I think I found that the vast majority of times that I cause those closest to me to sin 
are the ones that come from subtle heart problems. The subtle heart attitude that reflects pride, jealousy, or anger. And in a culture where greed replaces contentment, because that's often the case, greed replaces contentment, patience, forgiveness, and love will always struggle to exist in an environment where subtle, sinful attitudes reside just below the surface. You can't see them, but they're there. And so, sometimes I, str- I mean, I struggle with this. Sometimes I draw people into unhealthy conversations that lead to gossiping. My motive is to make myself feel better or to justify my attitudes or often just to vent because I'm frustrated. But if I'm also honest, it's just because I want to satisfy my inner nature. And I know no good comes from these conversations. And when I'm done, I think, ah, they heard what I said and didn't disagree. I must be right. You know, isn't that, that's how I feel. And so as I take stock of my life, another way that I can lead others to sin is through my pride. I sometimes get on these rants, and if you know me, you know that I get on these rants, where I'm talking about something I'm super passionate about. (laughs) Ben's laughing, because sometimes it's our Monday morning. Some of you may have experienced this. In these rants, I try really, really hard to persuade you to see something my way, and it can be the dumbest thing. And sometimes, without meaning to, I think I can accidentally draw people into sinning. I think um, if I try, you know, if I persuade them, they can either, they will either be part of my sinful pride, or I can make them so angry that they're angry back at me, and then they're sinning in their anger. And neither one of those is, is honestly good. And so I know those are silly, but if you look at the world around us and politics right now, I mean, that's what politics is right now. I'm going to yell at you and try to convince you that you're wrong and I'm right, and we're just going to do it back and forth, and we're not going to get anywhere. But I think that just kind of reflects the human heart. Running parallel to this idea is the idea of Christian freedoms, the in-your-face Christian freedoms or the not-so-in-your-face Christian freedoms. And those Christian freedoms are things that Christians engage in where for maybe for me, I don't see that as a sin. I can engage in that type of behavior. I'm not going to list any of them. We all know what they are. Whereas maybe somebody else who's struggled with that may think that is a sin for them, or they, they know that's a sin for them. And so that as a, as a radical community, we need to be sensitive to other people in those areas. We need to put our own needs aside and address the needs of those that we love dearly in our radical Christian community. Because in society around us, society would just say, who cares? Just do what you want. Everybody's going to do their own thing, and it's not a big deal. But here, in Christ's radical community, we want to say, actually, no, I love you, and so I'm not going to engage in those actions or behaviors, and because that's not what's best for you. And so we need to be thinking about that. How do we cause others to sin? In what ways have we not properly evaluated uh, our hearts and our actions? And how have we not taken into account uh, our hearts' temptations and stumbling blocks that our other Christian brothers see? And so Jesus takes causing other, others to sin very, very seriously. And I believe we all should too. If we want a radical Christian community to flourish, we must be careful not to cause others to sin. But more importantly, or not more importantly, but also and we must, my next point, stop 
just stop, seriously stop sinning, okay? And you'll see why I say that because this is a, a pretty crazy couple of verses. So if you look, it says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, okay? It is better for you to enter life crippled with two hands than to go to hell. And it says, cut off your foot and then pluck out your eye. Guys, that's crazy, okay? For a couple of reasons. First, because if we started doing that, none of us would have any limbs or eyes, okay? Second of all, uh, even if you start cutting off your arms and your legs, you're still going to sin because an armless, legless, eyeless person can still sin. Did you get that? And so Jesus is saying here that personal sin is anything but personal. Sin affects others. And unchecked sin ravages the church body just like unchecked disease ravages our own bodies. Our sin causes pain for other people. So often I think Satan convinces us that if we just keep it to ourselves, it's just our own sinful pain, our own thoughts, our own greed, our own lust. It's just our own problem. It's not going to affect anybody else. But nothing could be further from the truth. Our, our sin... It affects our attitude towards others and keeps us from being the godly image bearers that he created us to be. If you are in the midst of a battle with sin, don't let it stay personal. Include others in it because whether you like it or not, they're already involved and affected. Over the last five or six years, I've been very involved with, or I've been very open with you about the struggles in my own family, um, some of the things that go on. And at the heart of it are generational sins that have been passed down throughout the last number of years, um, beyond just my parents and to my grandparents. And one of those, an example, is uh, my grandparents, uh, my grandma, still alive, is a total workaholic. I mean, just an absolute workaholic. And my dad, I love him to death, is a workaholic. I mean, here's a, I love him to death. He's worked a lot of years, made a lot of money, and he still works really, really hard. And so I, I've inherited that as well. And I love working. Like, I love working. I love shoveling dirt. I love raking things. I love working with my hands. I love working. It's just fun for me. But if that detracts from my relationship with my family, if that detracts from my relationship with the Lord, that goes from being something that I do healthy with my body to becoming an unhealthy obsession that stops me from being the godly image bearer that I was created to be. And I have people in my life that actually check me on that. People that I love and trust who speak into my life and say, Andrew, are you sure you're spending enough time with your family? Are you sure you're taking rest? We also know that sin sticks around even after being confessed. Okay? We all have sin, we've all confessed, and we know that it sticks around. The forgiveness, it's, it lingers. And we must ask for forgiveness and repent, but we also must deal with the consequences of our decisions. If you've had an affair and have repented to your family and got forgiveness, there's going to be lots and lots of consequences that go along with those actions. Or maybe you've lied to your parents or some of your siblings Maybe you've asked for forgiveness and gotten repentance from them. You're still going to have to earn their trust back, and, uh, and that takes a while. There's consequences for our decisions. 
I think a good example of that would be, how many of you remember the Exxon Valdez, that big oil tanker that ran aground in Alaska about almost 30 years ago? Well, the Exxon Valdez, it ran aground and it just spilled a ton of oil into Prince William Sound up in Alaska. And Exxon obviously was very sad. They were very, you know, they, they asked, you know, they, they apologized. They helped clean things up. Um, there was a lot of effort that went into that. But decades later, there's still lingering effects to that oil spill. There are still beaches that are dirty. There are animal populations that had been devastated. The, the ecology of Prince William Sound was changed because of a human mistake, human error that was caused. Our sin is like that. We are like the Exxon Valdez. Sometimes we run aground and we sin and we cause pain to other people. We can clean up our mess as best as possible. We can ask for forgiveness, but we still have to deal with the consequences, and that's part of being human. And so going on with this, you see the repetition in this passage. And the repetition in this passage deals with the significance and the urgency of what Jesus is talking about. Sin needs to be dealt with, and it needs to be dealt with right now. The longer you let it fester, the longer you let it go, the more opportunity that it has to, to take you down, to tear you up. So the best time to deal with it is not tomorrow or next week. It's right now. And Jesus also uses hyperbole. Okay, we're not literally supposed to cut off our arms and legs. I've already kind of said that. But he's saying that because he wants to make a point using extreme exaggeration. We recognize that we are sinners saved by grace, and our lives, um, our, our lives we need to directly confront that sin. It's because of God's grace uh, he wants us to, to see our sin, to engage with our sin. And part of that grace is giving us the chance to, to see that sin, to deal with its consequences, and make the necessary changes in our lifestyle that keep us from sinning. It may mean, in God's grace, that you have to cut off something. You may have to prune something in your life, and it might be really, really painful. But it's better for you to engage God's grace and that pain than to be thrown into hell, right? That, and that hell of that difficulty and that hurt and their pain. And I'll get back to that. And so it can be messy, but it can be really, really good. If you've ever confessed sin to somebody that you, that you love, it's scary, right? You're just thinking, man, this person is not, they're going to see me for who I am. I'm a sinner. We already know that, right? We know that we're sinners, all of us. And we end up feeling really relieved after we've shared it with somebody else because now somebody can engage in that struggle with us. And so Jesus also talks about this idea of the kingdom of God. Over and over, Jesus has said this in Mark. The kingdom of God is here. It's present. It's tangible. You can see it. But we also know that that's only partially true because it's not totally here. It's the kingdom that's here, but it's not quite here yet. But just because it's not totally here now doesn't mean that we shouldn't start living like the kingdom is here. That's kind of the point of Mark is that Jesus is here. He's brought the kingdom of God. Let's start living like it right now. Why would you not? And so if there's not going to be any sin in heaven, if there's not going to be sin in the kingdom of God, why wouldn't we as a community try to remove sin now? It just makes sense. And so living this life maimed with sanctification scars is better than living in your own personal hell 
because you are afraid of those scars and of exposing your sin and accepting repentance. Jesus in this passage is talking about literal hell. We need to engage with that. I think it makes us really uncomfortable that hell is real. And hell is where, what happens when we don't have that relationship with Christ and, engage, and, and have that relationship and accept him for what he's done and his love for us by dying on the cross. But I also think there's another subtle meaning for us as believers where we can live in our own personal hell if we choose not to confess and repent of our sin. Because the longer you don't confess and repent, the more it festers inside of you and the, the more harder and harder it is on you. If you've ever talked to somebody that's had a secret for years or decades and they finally bring it out, it's ravaged their life. It's ravaged their life and they wish that they would have confessed it years and years before. And maybe, maybe that's you today. And so we have that temptation to not expose our sin, but let's do it. Let's do it because we live in a radical Christian community where we can engage with our sin and engage with other people's sin in loving, gracious manners because that's how God engages with us. And so free yourself up. So let's move on to the fourth statement. That one's really heavy. Let's move on to the fourth statement, which is less heavy and, and, and more, a little more fun. So my last one is, what about the salt? So what about the salt? Mark 9, 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I just love that, that verse. It's just so, just kind of there. So salt is used for purifying and preserving. And we don't really have to deal with this because we have refrigeration. But Jesus ends his monologue by talking about this salt that is used for preserving and uh, for purifying. And so additionally, we would know, oh, and then, so we, you put it on meat, you put salt on meat, right, and it preserves your meat. Or it can also be used as like an antiseptic, right, where you have a, a wound and you can rub salt into your wound and it really, really hurts, but it also keeps it from being infected. And additionally, we see that in Leviticus, that as the Israelites were to make sacrifices to God, they were to include salt with their sacrifice. That was what they were supposed to do. God did not want their sacrifice unless salt was included. So salt is a good thing. And this type of healing and preserving can only exist in a Christian community um, where peace is prioritized. The idea here is that if someone confesses a sin or something they're struggling with, the painful process of putting salt into that wound is only um, something that's going to happen if we have a mutual love and respect for one another. If I love you and I am peaceful with you, you are going to allow me to speak into your life, and the same thing happens the other way. And so radical Christian community is messy, painful stuff, and growing in your love for Jesus Christ, circling back to the beginning, uh, is difficult and challenging amongst Christians, let alone in the culture and society that we live in. As a church, let's create an environment where true Christian community can occur. Let's remove competition. Let's stop causing others to sin, and let's remove sin in our own lives. And when we do those things, we can be salt for other people. And salt is used for flavoring, right? We get to be salt to other people. As we disciple in a peaceful church community, we will be salt to the world around us. As they see how we engage 
and how lovingly and peaceful we engage, the world around us will see something a little bit different, like a tasty, aromatic flavoring that people will enjoy and find beneficial. Sounds like lunchtime, right? But we're not there yet. Um, so in conclusion, we've now walked through the four sayings of Jesus, and all four of them point to a radical type of kingdom living. That's why I'm saying, that's my title, a radical kingdom. And as Christians, we are called to live that type of radical Christian life. But I think one of the mistakes that we make, if we ended right here, one of the mistakes that we make as Christians and as a Christian leader is that we say, awesome, you know, now what? Let's live that radical Christian life. And the reality to that is, A, it's impossible. I'm just going to tell you right now, it's impossible to live that radical Christian life. And B, when it comes down to it, it's only an attempt to live a moral life. It's impossible, and it's an attempt to only live a moral life if, if we don't embrace the hope of Jesus Christ. That's when it becomes not impossible. Because radical kingdom living means embracing the radical love of Jesus Christ. It's a love that is inclusive to all, but exclusive to only those who choose to believe. It's a love that says, I'm going to give up my life and follow your life, Jesus. And it's a love that says, others are more important than myself. And it's a radical love that led Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sins, your sins, our sins. And it's a radical love that says, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the Father. No one else comes to the Father except through me. This is the type of radical living that others simply can't believe or find acceptable. This is the way the world around us, um, they just can't understand the centrality of Jesus Christ and the centrality of the gospel to our radical Christian community. And it's those kingdom values that they also find unacceptable as well. And so, as a Christian community, as we go out from here, let's live radical Christian lives, but not radical like the mainstream culture would say. I mean, let's radically embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and his love. Today, we saw four kingdom values, rejecting competition among brothers and sisters, not causing others causing others to sin, not sinning ourselves, and be salt by both purifying ourselves and experiencing refining. In the Bible, we're going to continue to engage with these radical kingdom ideals. There's many of them, not just in Mark, but all throughout the Bible. And just remember that those radical values can only be understood when we step aside and let Christ be at the center of our lives. That's a radical kingdom. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us the opportunity to live in your radical kingdom. We know it's messy, difficult stuff. We know we can't, we can't meet up to those ideals. We can't follow everything that you've shown us in your, in your scriptures of what the kingdom of God is about. But Lord, we also know that you are there for us. You are the hope. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, help us to embrace that. As a community here, help us to embrace your radical love in our lives and reject ourselves. That we would reject ourselves and accept you for what you have done. I pray for anybody in here who is, is living under the burden of, of wanting to do everything themselves, wanting to, to go through this life trying to do it all on their own, 
trying to live through this life, having sin or hurt or pain that they've shown towards others and keeping it to themselves. Lord, I pray that this would be a, a radical Christian community that is loving and forgiving, and slow to be judgmental, quick to be patient, and, and just full of grace with everybody who belongs. Lord, help us to be at peace with one another in a world where peace does not exist and cannot exist apart from you. Help us to seek that together, keeping you at the center of our lives. In your name, Jesus, amen.